Well, good morning. You may have noticed that Adrienne and Mark are not here. Uh, David led worship because uh, Mark and Adrienne and Jeannie and I are new grandparents. Yeah. It's exciting. Little Naomi Grace was born Thursday, about 4.15, but I'm not going to be one of those obnoxious grandparents that brags about it or shows pictures everywhere. I'm just not going to do that. This is Josh and Grace, by the way, and their baby Naomi Grace. And there's little Naomi Grace. Yeah, okay, I'm an obnoxious grandparent. I admit it. You know, Naomi is beautiful. She's cute and innocent and, and uh, wonderful. But you know what? She's not going to have to be taught to be selfish. She, like every other child that's ever been born other than Jesus himself, is born with a bent towards self-centeredness, selfishness, a bent to do wrong. And if you look at the whole human race, every one of us, individually or as a group, we have a problem. We can't seem to get along. There's wars, crime, conflict, selfishness, inequality. The list goes on. And it's not just out there. I look at myself. And I want to do good most of the time. But I find that too often I'm self-centered. I'm selfish. I hurt others through what I do or what I say. I'm insensitive. I get angry. I live by fear. There's just something wrong with every one of us. Well, today, as we dig into Romans 1, Paul helps us understand what the problem is. And you see, we need a proper diagnosis of what our problem is, right? We need to know what's going on. Seven years ago, when I woke up at three in the morning and I was feeling chest pains and I thought, I've got really bad indigestion. But over time, I thought, this feels different. There's something different about this. And eventually decided this is more serious. It may be a heart attack. I better go to the doctor. And it's a good thing I went because it was. You see, if we continue to misdiagnose our human problem, we will not get the help that we need. And the world around us says, well, the reason we have problems, the reason we have wars, the reason we can't get along is this, uh, lack of education. If we just could educate people better, we wouldn't have the kind of world we have. We wouldn't continue to have these problems. Or they think, well, it's genetics, so if we could just alter genetics, we could make people better. Or it's environmental, it's not nature, it's nurture. And if we figure out the environment, if we just improve people's environments, then people would be good and loving and kind and wouldn't harm each other. And yet, after thousands of years of people trying to self-diagnose and fix themselves, we haven't gotten any better, have we? The diagnosis is all wrong. We need God's diagnosis. After all, God is the one who made us. 
He created us. He knows what we're made for. And he can see what the real problem is. So it's time that we gave up our attempts at self-diagnosis and listened to God as to what the real problem is. So that's what we're looking at today in Romans 1, verse 18. He really continues this section through 320. So for the next few weeks, we'll be looking at the bad news. (laughs) We talked last week about the gospel. It's the good news. But you know what? You aren't going to embrace the good news unless you know the bad news first. In other words, if someone were to say, I found a cure for AIDS, well, we would be pretty excited about that. That'd be, you know, that'd be great. But if you knew you had AIDS, you'd be really excited. What Paul is helping us do is making us realize we have AIDS spiritually so that we will fully embrace God's answer for our problem instead of trying to work it out on our own. So let's look at this passage, Romans 1, verse 18 and following. And we'll see how this passage shows a progression. As Fred just read it for us, if you looked at the end, you heard that whole list of sins, ways we do harm to one another. Well, too often that's what we focus on. We think that's the problem. But we'll see what Paul does. That's the symptoms of our problem. But he begins with the deeper issue, the deeper spiritual realities of our problem so that we can Look at what the answer is for each of us. He begins this way in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. That's men and women. That's mankind who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He begins by saying there's wrath of God toward mankind, towards all of us. In other words, he points right from the beginning at what the real issue is for humanity, for every individual and for all of us as a whole. The real issue is in our relationship with God. There's a problem. That's what's wrong with mankind. Our relationship with God is a mess. And he says, what we experience is God's wrath. Now, you need to understand here something about wrath. Now, God's wrath is different than human wrath. Human wrath is rage. It's passionate. It's angry. It wants to do harm to another. That's human wrath. But God's wrath is different. God's wrath is much more his natural response to ungodliness. It's simply his nature that is affected by sinfulness that wants to withdraw from sinfulness. He is holy and pure, and when we are not, he cannot be with us. God's wrath may be explained this way. Some of you watched football yesterday or are going to watch it today, NFL or the Broncos, okay? Every game has referees. Now, those referees are watching for a violation of the rules. And when they throw a flag, it isn't because they're angry. (laughs) It's simply because they are doing their job. They're being who they're supposed to be. And that's kind of like God is with his wrath. 
You see, God is holy and pure, and when he sees a violation of the rules of righteousness, of how we're created to live as human beings, and yet we live differently, he reacts to that simply out of his character. That's God's wrath. He says he's reacting to two things, Paul tells us. He says his wrath is being revealed from heaven against two things. All the godlessness and the wickedness of humanity. What is godlessness? Godlessness is simply living as though God isn't real, as though he doesn't exist, that he doesn't impact my life. To be godless is to not treat him as God. It's going about our lives, making decisions, spending our money, going to work, being in relationship with other people, but all the time, though you may be religious, all the time living as though God really doesn't impact your life. That is godlessness. And God reacts to that because he knows how he made us. He made us to be in relationship with him and that anything outside of that is upsetting for him. Secondly, he reacts to the wickedness of humanity. Now, that word really is, more literally, unrighteousness. Remember the theme of Romans? Righteousness, that we might be made right, be put right with God, with ourselves, and with one another. But God reacts when he sees humans living differently than he created us to live, doing harm in our relationships instead of doing good. And all those things that he looks at us and he says, they're not in line with how I created them to be. And therefore, God reacts with a violation. (laughs) He throws the flag. How did we get that way? How did we get to be godless and not in line with God? This passage shows us it's a progression. We'll see six different steps that happen begins this way, that every person, every human being has a knowledge of God. Notice it says, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them since God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men and women, humanity, are without excuse. For, verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't glorify him or give thanks. Notice what this passage is saying. It says man has suppressed the truth, but the truth is that God has worked to make sure every human being has a knowledge of him. Every human being knows that God is there and knows certain qualities about him. God has proven that he's made sure. And what's known about God is known from creation. Now, creation doesn't reveal everything about God. That's why we have revelation. That's why God spoke to us through his prophets, and through Jesus, his son, so that we would understand him more fully. But he says every human being has a certain knowledge of God. Every human being. And he says that knowledge is wrapped up in two qualities. 
Verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, okay, you can't see these qualities, but you see them in creation, are his eternal power and his divine nature. First, his eternal power. As I walked out this morning, in front of the house, it was still dark out, and I looked up at the stars, the incredible beauty and the display of Orion's belt and Cassiopeia and Big Dipper and the North Star and I wish I could name others, but I don't know them. But it's incredible, the vastness of the stars and the beauty of that. And scientists tell us that everything is light years and light years and light years away, and they can't even get to the end of it. Nature reveals God's eternal power. And then you get to the other end of the scale, to the atom, that is so tiny, and yet it's got power and it's held together as the electrons circle around the nucleus and all of that, that, that there is incre- it's held together by incredible power and those atoms make up everything that exists. And you get to something a little bigger, the, a living cell and how complex it is and how involved. And then you get to living organisms and a human being and then the eye. And as you go on and you look at creation, you realize... There's something incredibly powerful, way beyond anything we can do. It's an eternal power. God is real. Every human being knows that at some level. So the other thing that creation reveals to us is his divine nature. His divine nature. His divinity, in other words. That God is divine. How do we see that in creation? Well, I think there's a number of ways. I think, for one, in human hearts, there's this sense that there's something way beyond me. And we all know that. Every culture, whether they've heard of Jesus or not, has religion. Every culture tries to worship whatever it is because we have the sense that there's something divine beyond us. I think we also see God's divine nature in creation through the fact that every culture and every human being has a sense of right and wrong. Anthropologists have studied different cultures, and though through socialization there may be slight differences in what they consider to be right and wrong, we all know when we've been wronged. And we know that that's not good, that's not right. We have a sense that there is a standard. That's God's divine nature. That there is a right. C.S. Lewis talked about this. Others have talked about this. Philosophers have talked about this. That built into the human heart is the sense of God's divine nature. So every human being who's ever been born has had a knowledge of God. We know he's real. Every person has that knowledge. And we can see it through creation. Now, I've never met... Michelangelo, the great artist of several centuries ago, Italian artist. But I've seen what he's done. I've seen the David in Florence. I've seen pictures of the Sistine Chapel. I've seen others of his works. And I know something about Michelangelo from what he's produced, from what he's made. I don't know everything. I know a few things just from looking at what he's made. But I know some things. And it's that way with creation. Creation reveals the glory of God. Helps us understand his eternal power and his divine 
nature. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. What this means, folks, is that there is no such thing as a true agnostic or atheist. Now, people claim that. I understand that. But there is no such thing. An agnostic says, I don't know if there's a God. I don't have evidence. An atheist says, there is no God, I'm convinced. But you know what? Deep in their hearts, Paul is telling us, every human being knows there is a God. They've suppressed it. They seek to deny it. But every human being knows there's a God. So that's where we begin. We all know that there's a God. We all have the knowledge of God. But the second step is that we refuse to treat him as God. Verse 21 again. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Back in verse 18, it says, men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what happens is that though we have a knowledge of God, every human being since Adam has said, you know what? I don't want to treat him as God. I don't want to glorify him or give thanks. I am going to run my life my own way. And every human being does this. They suppress the truth about him. And the result is, We refuse to live as his creatures. We refuse to acknowledge him as God. We refuse to glorify him and give thanks. We turn away from him. And ultimately, verse 22, we claim to be wise. We take God's place. We say, God, I'm going to ignore you, turn my back on you, and I'm going to decide what's best for me. I am going to decide what's true, what's wise, what's the best way to live. On my own. Notice the result. (laughs) Proclaiming to be wise, humans became fools. But the second step is that we refuse to treat him as God. So the third step is our minds and our hearts are darkened. Again, those two verses, because we didn't glorify him or give thanks to him, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. What happens when you turn your back on God and say, I'm going to ignore you, I'm going to live life on my own? It's a little bit like shutting out the sun. What happens when you shut out the sun? I mean, the sun gives light and heat and life to everything. It's like walking around with blinders on and you stumble around and fall and You can't handle life. You don't know where you're going. You can't see reality. But that's what man does. When you don't treat God as God, then your mind and your heart, it says, are darkened. You flip the switch. And now humanity walks around in darkness. We become fools. Our minds don't reason well. We can't think through things properly because God is not in the picture. So we become foolish in the way we think. Go to some university classes sometime and listen to what the professors say. There's a lot of foolishness being said. Or watch TV. You see, we become fools. And our hearts are darkened. 
What does that mean? The intent of our heart, our desires begin to pursue things and our purposes become to pursue things that are bad, are wrong, and yet we think they're good. We become twisted. We become darkened. So everything's twisted because we put blinders on, we've left out the sun. So the fourth step in this progression away from God is that we exchange worshiping God for worshiping creation. Verse 23. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, idols, made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Down in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served, and that word served is served in a religious sense, worshipped, created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Folks, you and I, every one of us, was made to worship. God created us to worship Him, to respond to Him. And if we shut Him out and say, I will not treat you as God, I will not glorify you or give thanks, I will go my own way, our hearts have a worshiping bent and we will find something else to worship. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what happens to us. And we begin to worship things that are created instead of God himself. Either we create them, idols, or we worship something that God created, but it's still something other than him. It says, when you exchange the glory of God, we exchange that for images, for idols. And much of society still today, but throughout history, they've carved little images and put them on the mantle and they bow down to them, burn incense and try to obey them and, and all because they worship idols. And we think, oh, we're far beyond that. We're more sophisticated. Well, we have our own idols that we create, don't we? We worship money, things, possessions, status, power. You can go on and on. Relationships. We worship things like that because we have a bent to worship. Just like someone who bows down before a physical idol on the mantle and thinks, Okay, I want my life to work better. I want things to go well. So if I follow all these rules, figure out what this idol wants, then my life will go better. That's idolatry. We may not physically put something on the mantle, but when we worship money and think, okay, if I just get more money and I'll just figure out how to do that, then my life will go well. I'll be happy. I'll be fulfilled. It'll fulfill the desires of my heart. That's our darkened hearts. Or money, or if I just think, you know, if I just find a spouse who will love me like I long to be loved, then I'll be fulfilled. And they let us down. And so we look for another relationship. We have an affair. We divorce and look for someone else to fulfill us. But the point is, they can never because we're built to worship God, not things, not other people. But if we turn our backs on God, as this step shows us, we worship God other things. could be nature, it could be people, it could be anything else created by God. But ultimately, it's our attempt to find life apart from Him. 
But here's what God does. Step five. God lets us experience life without him. It's part of God's love for us that he says, you want that? You think that'll fulfill you? I will let you go that way. I will let you experience some of the results of that. Listen to how Paul puts it. Verse 24. In verse 23, it says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, etc. Verse 28, Therefore, since, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, this is God's love, but this is step five. God lets us experience life without him. He gives us over three times. Gives us over. Gives us over. He takes his hand off us just enough. Not that we're destroyed, because we would be if he completely took his hand off us. But he gives us over just enough to our own choices, our own desires. He says, you want that? I'll give it to you. So that we will see how unfulfilling anything else is. How worshiping anything other than God is destructive in our hearts, in our lives. That's because he loves us enough to give us over to our own choices when we turn our backs on him and go our own way. So we pursue money and we find after a while that, you know what, it doesn't satisfy. Like, was it Rockefeller, I think, who was famously quoted, one of the richest men in the world, who was asked, how much money does it take to be happy? And he said, a little more. It's that sense that it's never enough. It's that law of diminishing returns that anything you pursue in life might feel good for a while, but after a while it's not satisfying because your heart is God-shaped, as Pascal said, and nothing else can fill it. Nothing. But God in his love lets us experience life without him. And the final step, the final result then, is that we live twisted, unright lives. (laughs) We end up living twisted, unright lives. He says this, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. As a result of turning our backs on God, we know God, but we turn our backs on Him We go and we worship other things and ultimately our lives become twisted and he points specifically to sexual immorality. That God created our sexuality to be beautiful and wonderful in the context of marriage, in this committed covenant relationship where it's meant to be the icing on the cake. But as humans, we've tossed out the cake And all we're eating is icing. And the result is we're getting sick. We live twisted, unright lives. Why is sex mentioned? Why is it so central to what twists us? 
Well, I think it's like Ray Sedman said, sex is man's longing after worship. Just as sex is a longing to unite with another person completely and fully, so is worship. Worship is ultimately our desire to unite with God, to be one with Him, to be fully who we are with Him, living in us, glorifying Him, giving thanks to Him. That's fully being human. But when we leave God out of it, suddenly we start pursuing sex as a way ultimately to worship in our own twisted way. And that's why it gets perverted. It gets twisted. We get confused about it. So we look for it in the wrong ways and in the wrong places and it becomes too important to us. Another way we're twisted, he goes on to say, is in verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. He's talking about lesbianism, homosexuality. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Paul says, the result of turning our backs on God is we pursue homosexuality. Now, why does he point to this? Because it's worse than any other sin? You know, in a number of places, Corinthians, other places, where homosexuality is listed as a sin, it's listed with gossiping, anger, and many other things that we've all done. So in God's mind, it's no worse. But he points to it here because notice how he describes it. He says, exchanging the natural for the unnatural. And that's what happens when you turn your back on God. Eventually, you begin to do things that you couldn't have imagined before. But you exchange what's natural, the way God created us, just consider our physical bodies and how we're designed for a man and a woman to be united. We exchange what's natural for what's unnatural. For what's unnatural. And he says, that's what happens when we turn our backs on God and try to make life on our own. Now, homosexuality was very common in the Roman Empire. Philosophers wrote a lot about it. One study I read said that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexual. You see, it was was very common in Roman society, which was declining very rapidly. And if you look at societies, I majored in history, I enjoy studying history. If you look at societies, as they decline morally and they get to a place of widely accepting things that are unnatural, like homosexuality, gay marriage, etc., it shows that they are in very near their own destruction. Because God's wrath gets revealed against the unrighteousness of men who continue to turn their backs on him. Now let me just say that in our media and other places, they tend to say, they constantly pound into our minds that homosexuality is genetic So, of course, it's not a sin. How can you... It's natural for those people. And therefore, how can you ever hold it as a sin against them? And we're being taught that over and over again in classes and and on TV and it's through all sorts of means. 
Well, let me say this. If you actually look at the studies that they use to claim that it's genetic, there have only been three studies that they normally talk about. And if you actually look at those studies, every one of them was conducted by homosexual researchers. And every one of them has been found to have huge flaws. So there is no real proof that homosexuality is genetic. Some people have desires early on, and I don't understand that. And, but you know what? It wouldn't bother me if they did find out it was genetic. A lot of our sin is genetic, in a sense. We're born with it. The point is, when we learn to trust God, we learn to live in line with him. I have a, I, I've known a number of people who have had those homosexual desires, have turned to God and seen God bring complete healing from that. I have another friend, a very good friend of mine, who became a Christian early on, even though he had homosexual desires, and he's been a Christian for many years, has served in ministry, and continues to battle those desires. God doesn't always take them away, but he's seeking to live a godly life. And that's what God calls us to do. Though we continue to fail and struggle at times, he continues to call us to live a godly life because God's plan is that we might be made right, and that's the story of Romans. But we need to understand first that we are not right. (laughs) Not right. Kind of in closing on this whole homosexuality idea, well then how should we treat homosexuals? Like everybody else. (laughs) We should seek to share Christ's love with them and offer them freedom in Christ so that they can get back in a relationship with God so his wrath might be turned away through the cross and they might learn to begin to walk with him and begin to walk rightly in relationship with themselves, with him, and with others. That's God's plan. So our lives get twisted, and Paul ends the passage this way, by a whole litany of sins. These are the symptoms, remember, of the real problem, which the real problem is us turning our backs on God. So the result is we do a lot of things that hurt relationships. We've been filled with wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossiping, slandering, God-hating, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing ways of doing evil, disobeying parents, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. All of these, if you look closely at them, are ways in which we do great harm to one another in relationships. And that's the end result. That's what comes out of us when we turn our backs on God is that we don't love others well. We do harm to one another. We destroy relationships. We hurt each other and we can't get along. And the last verse is very sobering. It says this, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's kind of the end of the story. That's where we've gotten so far from God that no longer do we say, well, deep down I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's where we say, it's good. This evil thing is good. It's where we call evil good and good evil. That's where we eventually get 
when we turn our backs on God. And we see that more and more in our society, don't we? Trying to call what's bad. And we all know it's bad. Deep down in our hearts, he says, every believer, an unbeliever, every human being knows what's right and wrong. And yet, even though they know it's wrong, they say it's good. That's what happens when we move away from God, our society approving of homosexuality and other things is a sign of our distance from God. But notice, these are all symptoms of the real problem. The real problem we saw that where Paul began is our relationship with God is a mess. We've turned our backs on him. We've gone our own way. We begin worshiping other things. We begin, uh, and, and things begin to get twisted and we move further and further from him. It's humanity trying to live apart from God. It's been that way since Adam. And that's the essence of sin. Not these symptoms, but choosing to live life without God. And God, in his love, lets us go our own way so that we'll see that life cannot fulfill us if he's not center at the center of who we are. That's his love for us. So how do we get put right? How do we get put right? Well, Paul doesn't get that there for a couple of chapters. But let me say this. It's not by trying to do better, by looking at all the things we do wrong and we gossip and we are disobedient to parents. And, you know, if you look at that list closely, all of us fit, right? Anybody ever disobeyed your parent? Anybody ever gossip? Anybody ever get angry? You see, we're all without excuse before God. So we all get there. But how do, we, how do we get right with God? How do we get right in our lives, in ourselves? It's not by trying to clean up our act and try to fix all those things that are wrong in our lives. It's by turning back to Him. And as verse 21 says, glorifying Him as God and giving thanks. And when we accept what Jesus did on the cross for us, that takes away the wrath of God. Jesus bore the punishment that we deserved The wrath of God is gone. And suddenly we have the opportunity to glorify Him as God, to worship Him as God, and to give thanks. And when we do that, when we come to Him, and we acknowledge how great He is, and we truly give thanks, recognizing that everything we have is a gift from Him and we're utterly dependent on Him, then we are being what God created us to be. We are being fully human. And he begins to make us fully right with him, with ourselves, and with one another. So what we want to do now, I want to close this in prayer, and then we're going to spend the next few minutes worshiping. We want to glorify him as God. And we want to give thanks for what he's done for us so that we might be the people of God doing what we were created to do and what we'll be doing in heaven forever. Worshiping him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this marvelous passage that helps us see the truth about ourselves. That we really are a mess and we really do need you in our lives. Lord, we confess that we've too long lived our lives apart from you. Help us, Lord, to more fully embrace you in our lives and to live moment by moment with you as Lord as master, glorifying you and giving thanks. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.